Welcome, Foul Tarnished. You are listening to Elden Kings, an Elden Ring discussion. Tell me, friends, do you ever wonder about the prehistory of Elden Ring? Does the prior state of the world keep you up at night? Well, as they say, the past is another country. Luckily for you, we'll be covering all of that ground tonight and more. Joining me at the Roundtable Hold to speak about her own theories on Elden Ring's possible ancient Pangea effect, and more, is Saint Tria. Is Saint Trina. Not the alter ego of Mikola, but the real deal that posts on Twitter and streams on Twitch. Hi, yeah. everybody. <laughs> hey, Trina. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Gideon. I'm very excited to talk about, uh, well, everything, really. We'll I'm pretty stoked time, to so. have you. Yeah. Well, I mean, getting into it, I know that you just released your Pangea theory earlier this week. That's a pretty exciting thing. Yeah, it was a it was a really big project, um, and it was one of those things where I I, I feel like maybe you you've only written a, well actually no you've written quite a quite a good amount of stuff now right with your with if we're counting um, fanfic and all that. Yeah, I had that like master document I made oh, like last year back over the summer, yep. and then I took a yep. long break, and now I'm back at it with random fan fictions. The latest yep. one is called Revelation of Cause, and it goes over the fishing hamlet and how Gammon, uh, you know, does some questionable things. <laughs> yup. No shit. <laughs> so <laughs> for real, <laughs> this was like. So you probably basically that was my premise to say. You probably have felt this effect before, where when you're working on a project, uh, it feels like you're like running out of time on the other stuff. And for me, I was like, I really want to get back to playing Demon Souls. I really want to research, so I like push this out of my brain like as hard as I could on stream, um, just so we could get it done. And um, but. Uh, that ended up working out really well because then we got a bunch of people on stream to like throw in ideas and uh we just ended up having a really good time with it so i think um really like making it my main focus for a couple days uh made it turn out really well and i'm glad it's off my plate <laughs> yeah sometimes you have that idea that's just germinating in your subconscious right. and it's like niggling you at the back of your mind and you just can't get it out of your out of your yep. head. <laughs> you gotta just push it through so you can get on to the next thing and resume the rest of my life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, within this Pangea theory, like you said, I mean, it was a lot to think about. And, like, <laughs> like you know, it was, took a couple of days after of just fevered lore hunting and whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. Starting at the beginning, I saw like you you sponsored it in your tweet, releasing the whole document. But you had this thing about uh, hand imagery, and now I have to hand it to you. I have never really done that research before my myself, and it mm -hmm. was really in depth. Like, uh, could you would you want to go into that, like your insight yes, and whatnot? Absolutely. So, one of the cool things about Elden Ring, and all really all from software work and Miyazaki work. Um, but I think it shows itself a lot more in Elden Ring than ever before, um, is just reused ideas, right? Uh, I think I think a lot of people who have been around the block for a while know that From Software does this, 
but they they just really turned it up to eleven. So uh, maybe I'll just give you like the the first. We'll just we'll just read out the first slide here so we can get it ourselves started. Basically, yeah. the idea is that <clears throat> a hand unfurling is one of the most repeated visual motifs in Elden Ring. So if you're holding your hand and it's just opening, that's like one symbol, right? And depending on the context you put it in or how how you manipulate it, you can use it to mean a lot of different things. So in Elden Ring, I would say it's used in a couple different ways, but usually it is referring to somebody on our plane of existence trying to ascend to another plane of existence. Or, you know, in the case of the Elden Beast, that's probably my favorite gif. That's just literally the embodiment of the cosmos. You know, when the Elden Beast first appears and his hand is coming out of the sludge and then he, like, whips up and points his hand at the sky, that's kind of, like, how I think of my true north for this image, right? Um, so that little, like, grasp towards the sky in a way is kind of like the, the, the narrative thrust of the story to me. And the reason I feel so strongly about this and the reason why I think it's really cool is that uh, all this corroboration and stuff that you're saying is, like, really in-depth, I kind of just stumbled onto that, you know? Because, <laughs> like, while I was gathering the gifts of everything, like, I knew this was in the game, right? But I gathered maybe, like, 50% of them, and then when I was on stream, people were, like, reminding me of other ones. And when you, like, just start putting them all together, and, like, you collect them all and put them all next to each other, you're like, holy shit! All these stories are all, like, really similar, and they all deal with the same things. And then you realize that there's almost, like, uh, I guess, like, a secret language. And that's what alchemy is all about, right? Having a secret, a secret symbolic language. Uh, and I think it's taken a while for Miyazaki to really like earn that language over the games. And now that we have Elden Ring, it's just been like ruminating, and they've like tweaked what hands mean in different contexts. And um, you know, they're all centered around desire, but. Uh, what that desire is used for in the overall story is totally different in each of the games. And uh, I just think that there's just so many little nuggets in Elden Ring where like all of the symbolic ima uh, imagery in game and all of, the, all of the language points in the same direction. So that even if the text doesn't tell you what happens, everything else is already telling you what's going on. So, hands are one of the really cool ones, and uh, an unfurling hand, specifically, I think is what Elden Ring is all about. Like, Yeah, but I, like the I, think, I think I'm getting is. a little bit ahead of myself. Yeah, yeah here, I'll pass it. Say, say what you're going to say, sorry. <laughs> no, you're okay. It's like, uh, hands are very much a centerpiece of the imagery in Elden Ring, right. and it's, like you say, it is like a culmination of this worked-upon theory, because we've seen it before 
in your uh, in your model, you have that picture of Gale reaching towards the heavens to symbolize sort of his desires to reunite the Dark Soul and his own like personal goals. Mm-hmm. Um, he's reaching towards you. He wants your Dark Soul, but like you have yeah. it repeated in um, Elden Ring in such a complex and more overarching manner. You know, you start with the two fingers and the three fingers, and then right. you have all of these different visual designs throughout the game. And it's like, like you said, it's um you started putting together the footage and everything started to click. Like, you know, it wasn't even like you were like theorizing at that point. It was like you were stumbling on something because it's just such a recurrent (laughs) theory. Here, look, it's right there. (laughs) You're like this heretical, like historian that's finding some sort of ancient history. And you're like, guys, you have to hear about this. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So that's kind of like the uh, what I would call the real part of the uh, the conspiracy theory, and then from like the real imagery, then we can build uh, uh, our insanity model, basically. <laughs> so um, maybe I'll give you. I, let me give you like the the main idea, since I know some people probably haven't um, uh, ever heard of this idea before. And then maybe we can go into like whatever whatever you want to basically like what what you find interesting about it. So the main thrust of the theory, at least my version of the theory. So there's like a couple different people who have worked with this, um, but the the precipice of everything was a video by the Ashen Scholar. Ashen Scholar, great uh, lore YouTuber, homie of ours. Uh, Go look them up on YouTube. I'll yeah, link them below. It's, great. <laughs> it's a great video. Uh, it's called Connecting Caleb and the Mountaintops. And basically it just goes over all the different stuff that exists both in the Forbidden Lands and Kaled. Uh Namely, we're talking about the super huge Giga Giants and the uh, Dino Dogs and Dino Birds that are in both zones as well as some dragons. And one thing that I think kind of got lost to time in the uh, the Twitterverse was, and I don't know if Ashton Scholar might have actually mentioned it in the video, but there was also somebody early on who mentioned that the scaling uh, of Upper Kaled, where Dragon Barrow is, is actually the same as the mountaintops themselves. Uh, so that's like a really weird, like huh moment you know you could say like oh they just wanted this end game area to be somewhere you go back to and like maybe that's a little bit true but i got i feel that it is a hint <laughs> and it definitely sort of follows because you've got this idea of dragon barrow is like the barrow of the dragons it's where they were buried after right. they lost their war and if you right. understand Ooh, like you know point. like in um dark souls one with the tomb of the giants or in Dark Souls 2, mm-hmm. how the giants are inherently linked to the dragons. There's like a recurring imagery of the giants being associated with the dragons. Like Dark Souls 1, they get yep. genocided with the ancient dragons. Dark Souls 2, they're linked to them metaphysically. So like, maybe that is like a little hint. Like the giants served the dragons because they existed back then. And maybe back then, you know, the land was connected. Because like, why mm-hmm. else would there be a giant skull in Kaelid? So I think your theory definitely adds up when you consider it with some like other imagery or ideas that are like metatextual so that's where me and the other lore theorists kind of like diverge and that's where why i I, uh, focused my document 
on this furled finger imagery uh, is because they have other theories. Basically, so the idea here is that Kaled and the mountaintops have to be related somehow. Uh, we don't really know what it's supposed to mean, but I'm fairly convinced it means something, right? <laughs> um, so my my theory is that the world was, you know, it looks like a finger, and then, uh, but further back in time, it could have been more clenched together, and then Caleb could could have been right next to the mountaintops. Uh, but their theory is that maybe there was a land bridge, and that there was just more landmass there, um, and so I will need to let them lay those out because they have a lot of their own reasons for uh, looking into those things that I don't think they've fully laid out yet. Um, at least I know Ashen Scholar hasn't. I don't know if Quailag is going to like dive more into this or just go on to other things, but I think Ashen Scholar will expand on their uh, land bridge theory. But point being, there's something fishy going on. And I think that basically because the game has so much... Um, like haha lol uh science references in it that we're probably looking at something where the 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 continents were closer together fair missoula was in the middle i think the middle some people think whaling dunes some people have different spots for it but i think the middle uh and um once natural disasters such as meteors probably meteors we can get into that if you want um happened and destroyed fair missoula then the continents started to drift apart and the tectonic plates had been like utterly destroyed basically in my head canon uh by all of these meteors and so then it just started drifting apart and then you have the imagery becomes that of a fist that is formed and then over time, that fist opens up as Kayla drifts away, and it looks kind of like an unfurled finger. And then eventually, if we were to fast forward it to, say, after we become Elden Lord, and we make everything hunky-dory and everybody's chilling <laughs> in some hypothetical <laughs> scenario, uh, then eventually maybe it would even look like the tarnished wizened finger. If you guys remember what the tarnished wizened finger looks like, it's the same image of a furled finger but it's like relaxed you know it's just like a little bit bent it's got yeah, some intention it to it it's like it's like pointing at something it's doing something but it's not so intense i guess of a pose yeah it's it's unfurled one could say yeah. um. mm -hmm, exactly and that's so that's what i think the whole imagery is supposed to express is like a human gains wisdom and as they gain wisdom they their uh fear turns to ambition so like the fear would be like the clenched fist version uh and you're like not secure you're like trying to hold on to things and then that fear turns into ambition and then you're like kind of pointed out you know you're like trying to grasp at something outside of yourself and then eventually as you gain wisdom and stuff you start to realize that like you have what you need basically it's like you don't you don't need that ambition to like drive you anymore and you've become wizened <laughs> if you will it's like the world itself like the continental landmass is a hand and it's slowly unclenching unfailing like you right. say 
You know, and mm-hmm. if you want to compare that to like the three fingers and two fingers, then maybe it's like the three fingers who are regressive. They can only interact by grabbing at you, making a fist. Mm-hmm. The two fingers can only interact with you by like wiggling and then unfurling Extending. position. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I mean, maybe that's another hint at what's going on. Totally. No, I do. I do think that I don't have like the the full idea on what the two fingers are representing exactly yet um but the three fingers seem a little bit more easy to understand i would say because their grasping imagery again has been used so many times in like i would say vaguely i would say negative you know it's like kind of harsh uh, hard to say negative or positive when it comes to miyazaki stuff because everything has shades of gray um but i would say the grasping hand is in the uh the the category of things that are going to lead you down a, a bad path. For, yeah, it's part of like the life. greed and the ambition that's right. sort of right. You know, like with Rikard, he ruins himself through greed and ambition. Mm-hmm. Reaching for something you cannot attain is like oh shit. Okay, you totally <laughs> just made me understand this. Um, the picture of all the hands like trying to hold the staff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rikard picture... has this. Yeah, what is it called? Um. You mean the one that Pinal uses, the weapon? Or Yes, I think that is what it's called. Yeah, it yeah is it's that like one. the serpent trying to devour the, the world, so it's like yes. the serpent's mouth is trying to... Uh... And then you also have Gideon's staff, which is like a hand trying to grasp, but an eye which represents knowledge and the world yep. and everything. So it's... Uh... Totally. Yeah, so you, you mentioned Cataclysm being the genesis for this sort of tectonic drift. Um, And you mentioned Mm -hmm. the meteorites specifically. I was wondering, like, you know, like, I mean, obviously we see uh, the the mountaintop of the giants is sort of data. Same thing with the consecrated snowfield to an extent. Like, they're all uh, snowy. There's nothing that grows or lives there. Even on the map, you can see that it's a different shade very starkly to the rest of the world. And, like, Flame Mm -hmm. Peak itself has to be chained up. So is this idea of like chaining the world together to make sure it doesn't fall apart part of this cataclysmic idea that's ruined the land? Are those together, or um, do they feed into each other at all? I I do think so. So one of one of the things that made me think that this was possible in general is just all the uh, chasms that are in the mountaintops in general. And one thing I didn't write on my report. Um, what we could talk about now is if you look at the old um yeah I'm I'm hovering over it the old concept art for the map I straight up thought this was fake when I first saw it I was like no that's not real and then I saw that somebody posted it like before the game came out and like and it and it was real I think it was in like the art book eventually and shit so it clearly is real and uh, the mountaintops, they have, like, a much more obvious, um, like, chasm here. It's, like, just one big split down the middle, rather than a bunch of scra- craggly splits. Like, you could kind of, like, write them off in the current version of the game as, like, oh, no, mountains are just like that, bro. They just got some chasms in them sometimes, but, like... In the old design, I think it's even more obvious that, like, it's supposed to be not normal. You know, yeah, because the crack goes through the entire landmass. It's cutting the entire cliff away from the rest of the mountain tops. Mm -hmm. 
So it's possible that it is a totally different natural disaster. But the one thing that I would say for sure is, A, there were meteor strikes. Very likely multiple, but we don't know if it was multiple events or just one event. Um, and then there definitely were uh, huge level uh, natural disasters in general of some type. You know, maybe this was a different type of natural disaster, but uh, the ones we can say for sure are that comets came down and at some point, like, shit got real enough to affect the world in a very serious way. Yeah, and we know from, like, real-life inspiration that comments aren't exactly a friendly thing to the topography of a landscape. They're rather right. destructive. Yeah. It's kind of, like, crazy how much destruction a comet can do to a planet. Yeah, actually, it's, uh, sort of wild. So something I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on is, uh, you know, as a possible sort of cataclysmic event, um, we have Destined Death talked about by a lot of the Finger Maidens, especially, as this terrifying force that could kill the world itself. Mm. And I wonder if you could take this in a literal sense, where you could assume that the reason there's only spirit things, like spirit trees and spirit uh, deer and whatnot, on the mountaintops is that Destined Death has gone through and it's killed the living life force, the vitality of the land, and that could be oh. why it's sinking into the ocean. And that, and like, oh, go on. <laughs> that would make the scar make more sense. Because it's, it's pretty different from the crater in the middle. You know, there's like this giant crater in the middle. It's like If we look at the, uh, the old map, it's probably easiest to see. There's like a huge crater in the middle, but the mountaintops splitting seems much more akin visually to like um godwin's like scraggly little um oh the hollow brand i didn't even yeah, connect exactly. that that's fascinating like it looks like the centipede wheel the way it's got the sort of fringes right um we will definitely i'm definitely gonna put this map of the like proto artwork into the video here for visuals for any of the viewers yeah. it's very interesting i'm definitely gonna yeah, tweet love... or make a blog post about it too like it's sort of insane yeah. to look at you can see the they used to have the hallig tree they intended it for to be south of lyernia and you can sort of see the remnants of it on your on the map and yep. you can also just like lyernia itself was definitely meant to be a lake you know it was like avalon before it was made to be like yeah, this shallow think... mud pit yeah <laughs> They had, I think they had, like, a better way for us to get around at first. Like, they were thinking about boats or something. And <laughs> Screw Torrance, I want boats. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, moving past the idea of, like, destined death and the Earth tree being the anchor of all lands, um... I uh, I was reading another little point in your Pangea theory where you sort of describe the crucible as being the beginning points of the universe and the sort of theorized end point where the frenzied flame will one day devour all life in the chaos and ending. And yeah, yeah, um, yeah. it's like that idea sort of, you know, like you compare it to the big crunch where like everything will go back to uh, like the way it was at the, as the Big Bang. Um, mm -hmm. when our real-life universe ends. And I'm not sure if you've seen uh, 
the anime Neon Genesis Evangelion, but that entire story is about humanity, humans, like through a shadow government, trying to revert themselves into the primordial goop that they were at the beginning of existence. So like, go back to the beginning of the evolutionary line, which is what the crucible of life represents. So like, I don't know, there's a confluence of things going on there. So I guess I wanted to ask you about the big crunch and your thoughts on it, and also see if you've watched Evangelion. (laughs) So I haven't, and literally people tell me like every day that I need to watch it, so it's on the list. <laughs> <laughs> I will definitely watch it, but um, let me give you my little spiel, because I don't know if I... Uh... Yeah, I like sort of did it justice in this, but it, it really could be its own thing, right? So let me start with um, just how, how I read the, the game in general. So... In Elden Ring, there is, we talked about the language that Miyazaki has, um, but he's actually just, he doesn't stop there. He He's borrowing symbols from wherever the heck he wants, and in particular, when we've been looking into them and like digging back to where they come from or where we think they come from, you know, you can't really fully prove it, but you can find lots of reference images that look really similar and stuff you can you can get to the point especially with this game where like you can start dating things you can start saying like all right this stuff looks like mesopotamian architecture and then you go to the next civilization and it looks like uh byzantine or and or roman architecture so there's a lot of attention to detail in that realm and i think that that also seeps into the ethos of the game. And if you come at it from that approach, uh, then certain ideas, uh, as we've been looking at all of the different symbols in game, we find tons of stuff from real life and history. And on top of that, we find a lot of symbols from a lot of different uh, fields of thought and different religions and the cool thing about those symbols is that they're basically like mashups so let's pretend we're taking like the Caden riders who are the the horse people that you see in Limgrave with the dismounters and whatnot yeah um, like the barbarians that were hired as mercenaries exactly exactly and they love their horses so when we were looking into that, and I think Rachel did most of the research on them, to be honest, um, there are a bunch of different symbols from different horse-like related societies over in like the Eurasian steppe and places like that. Um, but they also have their own themes in game. So basically, if you're talking about any one character in game, there's kind of like an input-output thing going on where you take a bunch of different historical uh, symbols and meanings and stuff that we've used for years and years and years that are kind of like, you could say built into the subconscious of the world a little bit because there are symbols that have been used so long. You swirl them all together, you kind of like mix them up, kind of like almost you're, you're the crucible. And you spit them out on the other side, and then you get a new symbol. And that new symbol means something slightly different than the constituent parts. Uh, so, <laughs> I'm saying all that to say 
that when we're looking for like the things that they're referencing, they're going to reference symbols that already ride those lines. So like if we're if the, the biggest one that people pick up on early on is science and spirituality, right? Uh, Ray Lucaria is like the easiest example of this where they are like all mind and they get to the point where they achieve their version of enlightenment and their version of enlightenment uh, involves not having any emotions or just like being inanimate and being a part of like just being knowledge incarnate basically. Um, yeah, like Azur and Lusa are literally crystallizing within their brains and they're sort of yes. the height of what Raya Lucaria can achieve. You know, so like... for them, their pursuits of knowledge are spiritual. So when I was like looking for things that they're referencing in game, uh, the Big Bang and the Big Crunch, those make sense to me as symbols to to like base your story around because they ride those lines so well. Like they, for not for everybody that studies it, of course, some physicists are like, no, this has nothing to do with God. But for a lot of physicists that are obsessed with figuring out what happens at the beginning and end of time, uh, that is an ex extremely spiritual journey for them. You know, so a lot yeah, of them it's like literally think of it as encountering God. Yeah, sci where science fails and there's just ignorance, like people turn to spirituality as a way of reasoning out with what they know right. and the unknown. You know, like people talk about God as not being like an entity, but like the equal sign that goes between two truths. So those two truths are like the ignorance, the unknown you have to deal with, the fact that we can't literally know what happens at the end of the universe. But mm -hmm. then you also have the scientific basis and you're like, well... I can think through what might happen. <laughs> it's interesting. Right. That... I can get pretty darn close if I try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I feel so like... They... Oh, so oh. go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that basically because Hayata references everything starting from one great, because we have the law of causality, which references all things being linked... And then we have the cause, uh, the law of regression, which references everything coming back together. And we have a an ending that also lines up with everything coming back together. To me, that just tells a story of everything starting at one point and everything ending at one point. And if we're thinking of a parallel in our real life that would, you know, sum up that in a spiritual way, it would be the Big Bang and the Big Crunch. So that's kind of like, how I ended up there. How I end up interpreting the Flame of Friends, the ending, as referencing the Big Crunch. Spiel I like that explanation. <laughs> it was a good spiel. That's why I have you on. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, no, I mean, it, it's really interesting to put it that way, because I feel like it makes a lot of sense, and I think it's definitely a part of the intention. Like... You know, obviously the crucible of life is like the genesis of life isn't exactly the Big Bang in like the literal sense of the Elden Ring, but there's a lot of way right. like you said, like you take you take something from real life that's just subconscious to all human knowledge, something so ingrained mm -hmm. as knowledge of how the what universe has started, what we know of it as a human species, and you take like this idea of it all started as one being and then it branched out from there. You know, Elden Ring's not really 
caring about how the universe created. It's caring about how the lands between created. And that's right. with the, the frenzied flame, and that's how it ends. Just like how our universe begins and ends at the same point. You can even interpret the uh, the frenzied flame ending, that giant ball of fire above the uh, burnt-out Erd tree, as the crucible of life reconfiguring, yeah. burning out the Erd tree, and escaping in its new frenzied state. Like, there's a lot of... Uh... A lot of connections it, to be made. It really does look like a singularity in the middle, too. It, it almost looks like somebody else's big crunch is coming and just bursting forth into us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when universes collide. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe they'll. Uh, maybe their next game will pull a dragon guard, where the Elden Beast flies into uh, Tokyo City and gets shot down by the Tokyo military, and then it's studied releasing uh, white ash or sand or whatever the glorification thing. What? Yeah. Uh, have you played Dragon Guard? This probably doesn't no, make any sense. <laughs> no, but I I am following you because uh, my sister and I watched different versions of Full Metal Alchemist. And we didn't realize we watched different versions of Full Metal Alchemist until we started describing the ending. And she was like, no, they go to London. <laughs> they go to real life London for some reason. I'm like, no, it doesn't happen like that. <laughs> the so, original yeah. Full Metal Alchemist anime was really working with what they had. And I guess yeah. they really wanted to like go beat up Nazis. That was definitely yep. not where I thought the plot was going fan service for a show that like doesn't have sex so what are they gonna do <laughs> i guess i guess they found out what they could try at the very yeah. least <laughs> um uh, yeah so uh in your Pangea theory, you had this really nice idea that the time wheel in Elden Ring, like the little iconic thing that marks out the mm. day-night cycle that spins around when you rest at the grace site uh, that it depicts various regions in game, possibly okay. with its own like sort of decor art on it. Um, would you like to talk about that at all? Hell yeah, definitely. Okay, so um, I would say this is like uh, I, okay, so they're kind of like tied, right? I I think the furled finger part and this part are like the most convincing to me. Um, so I I hope I do it justice. So, the idea, let's start with the idea of Faramazula being in the middle of the map. Let's just pretend that's a given, because that'll make explaining the rest of this a lot easier. No problem. So, if, if Faramazula is in the middle of the map, then if you look at the compass, or the time of day wheel, you can notice that there is a storm right in the middle of the wheel. And it looks an awful lot like... Um, there's, like, some dr draconic beings, like, fl flying around it, almost. They kind of look like sea creatures, which is a whole other tangent that we don't, like, if we go down that, I'll, I'll get fully derailed. So let's just pretend they're, dr they're draconic. Uh, so th there's, like, some flying dudes around here, so maybe, maybe this circle in the center represents Ferrum. Like, because, you know, it's a storm, it moves in a circle, and that kind of feels like time. So, yeah, it definitely was striking the knee. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's like the wheel of time moving in the center. That would be pretty poetic, in my opinion. But then, as I zoomed in on it, um, I noticed that the, the little ball and the needle that point towards the middle 
actually looks a lot like a comet pointing straight at the middle. So the idea here is that if if this Pangea theory is true, perhaps this is foreshadowing, uh, telling us what happened in the world and what what put it in its current state, and maybe it's depicting a meteor striking Faramazula. Okay, so let's pretend you believed me. And then we move over to the rest of the time dial. So we've got the the brown bit that it like rotates around, but we also have this colored circle in the middle. And the colored circle in the middle is where things get really interesting. And um, I'm going to put a pin in what doesn't work about this. Maybe you'll remember, I might forget. But when I'm done with this spiel, let's talk about what doesn't look quite right. Absolutely. Um, okay, thank you. So, let's pretend if Ferrum is the brown bit in the middle, let's pretend we can give all of the regions in the game and or major landmarks in the game a different color. And if you notice, they all have different colors on the map. So if we give them a different color and then assign those colors to different times of day, then we can make um, basically a little map of our actual map of the lands between onto the time wheel. And in basically, quote unquote, chronological order, we can go from Kalid, which is kind of our red afternoon color, to Limgrave, which is kind of like our dusk green color. And that's one of the ones that I came up with late in the game. So we can we can zoom in on that if you want to talk about it in a second. Um, then we go on to Liernia, which is like our blue nighttime zone with all the, the moon stuff and all that. And then we have the the Dectus um, lifts. Dectus Dawn? And yeah, so th I wrote Dectus Dawn just to like remind myself that basically if you were to map all these out and they're like cosmologically aligned to different times of day, Dectus is basically like the precipice between night and early morning. So that makes it dawn, which I just thought was cute. I can see how the logic follows there. Yeah, and when you hit and when and um the imagery works too because when you're in this um this little zone and you get to the other side, that's you like get a big reveal and it's like the sun is um rising. You know, you get like this big valley of gold in front of you. Yeah, you you're your even eyes. like going up vertically from Lyernia yeah. to the Altus Plateau, so you're ascending, you know, there's like a exactly. whole thing there. So, uh, from there, we got early morning being um, Landell, and then midday could be the mountaintops. So if we take our, our model that we've been talking about this whole time, and we scooch Kaled over near the mountaintops, then we basically get like a circle. And that uh, circle and or ring <laughs> uh, has all the colors in the same order as the times of day on our little dial. And because these symbols just like match up so easily, to me it's just like, I think they're just leaving us little hints. Like, something's going on here. I don't know if we have the exact answer of what it is, but they definitely seem to line up that way on purpose. And uh, I am, I, I am I am remembering everything I wanted to talk about, so 
Let me zoom in on Dusk really quick. So if you, one of the very first criticisms that people are going to give us of this part of it is, yo, green isn't on there. Green isn't on there. But it are, actually is a little bit of green just hidden. Right past the red bit and right before the blue bit, there is like a hill. And they purposely colored it green. Like all of the other, um, all of the other land masses and and little bits of land are the color of the background it's with, but this random one is green instead of blue. So I think that was them being like, "Oh shit, uh, dusk isn't really in there." Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Make it green. <laughs> I mean that makes sense. Although I guess they didn't really. Would they need a dusk if they um didn't have it as an in-game time and if there wasn't a region that matched up to it? Or are you saying right. that dusk is limgrave? Yes, dusk is limgrave. That's oh, what I. That's what I, I, meant. See, I there, see. So like, I like at first it's like, oh, limgrave is green, but there's no green on the on this time dial. But there is. It's just kind of like hidden. Um, and so okay. you might you might you might be um quick to dismiss it and just be like, okay, it's just greenish. They're just doing a nice transition. But the reason I do think it's on purpose is because um, we meet Melina here. And she is the Gloam-eyed person, and Gloam is Dusk. And since we meet her here, I think we're meeting her at Dusk. Yeah, and you do see her at night in the cutscene, although that was probably a visual motif, just because nighttime visits are cooler, and it makes it look like you're sitting at a bonfire. But, like, I mean, that is another thing to consider within the, uh, Mm -hmm. the plot that we're presenting. Um... I find that striking. I think honestly, the uh, the center of the uh, the time dial looking like Feramazula is definitely like almost I, like I'm I'm sort of sold on that. Even if the rest mm-hmm. of it, I think, can like remain up into like up in like the theorizing air, but like the center of it with the way that the dragons or like you say they could be fish, or but the way that it looks like with the flying creatures going around it in a twister. Um, yep. definitely feels, you know, it's the twister outside of time, the storm beyond the time. The ancient dragons yeah, represent totally. the storm, and they are timeless. So, like, definitely Ferrum at the center, and the fact that it's the dial that represents time, and it, it it's shaped like a meteor. Like, it, within Dark Souls 1, we know that the first flame is what literally started time for the Dark Souls universe. So, mm, for, like, yeah, about for that. like, Elden Ring, since the Elden Ring is the analog to that, since the, mm-hmm. golden, uh, the golden star coming with the Elden Beast is what precipitates the first flame event in time beginning, like, prehistory is prehistoric before time passes and is recorded. Wow. Like, the, you've got this idea of representation there, and I think, like, that might have absolutely been intended, and I'm completely in love with it, like... Yeah. I I like that a lot. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. This game is too good. It it's is. like the same it's the same thing. It's just turned up to 25, you know? It's yes. just like they really is it, they just juiced it full of George R. R. Martin. <laughs> <laughs> they were like they they finished the trilogy and two other games besides and they were like, "Okay, that was fucking awesome, but like there's some yeah. issues with Dark Souls 1 that we have to go and address." And we have so many ideas now. Let's fucking perfect it. And then they just yeah. took all of the ideas of the trilogy, put it, uh, gave it a new, nice setting that was way more like culturally inspired and like 
vague in its actual morality, and then you've got like this amazing game. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really is just wonderful. Uh, so, okay, so I wanted to piggyback off that a little bit and ask you a question. Okay. Do you think that some of our geekiness about uh, recurring themes, recurring characters, and all that, do you think it would be slightly diminished had they not built it off of the bones of Dark Souls 3? Because to me, I kind of like, I, lo I love that they did that. It saved them time. It saved them creative juice. And I think they got to inject that energy into all the other aspects of the game, and I think that's part of why it was so great. You mean like how the engine is somewhat taking a lot of the uh, the stuff that was used in Dark Souls Three, and not like yeah, it's it... like a common complaint from old heads. You know, it's just like uh, it feels a lot like Dark Souls Three, but then they added an L two button. Okay. But like to me, that enhances it because they're making commentary on their previous work. Yeah, um, so From Software has, like, since Dark Souls 2 even, been, like, they had, like, this careful refining process where they look at what happened and worked before, and they're like, how can we make this better? So, like, you know, Dark Souls 2 has a lot of complaints about it because they took away poise, they made armor worse, and then they make dodges based off of, like, adaptability. But the <laughs> mindset there was that Dark Souls 1 can be trivialized by wearing heavy armor and poise tanking the entire game, and oh, yeah, most true. people had the most fun playing it where they were light rolling, where they were engaging in the dodge mechanic. So what Dark Souls 2 tries to do is they try to make it so that light rolling is a stat to level so it feels more engaging. But of course it's not more engaging because that's that's taking skill and player skill and it's putting a yeah. stat to it, which isn't fair and it doesn't feel good to level because it makes it feel like you just have to require level it. Um, oh, you see exactly where they, they got confused there. Yeah, you can really, like, it, it's a very forgivable mistake when they're literally defining the action genre for this entire sort of Souls-like category. <laughs> um, Good point. Good point. <laughs> but, like, you know, it also deserves its critique. And, like, Dark Souls 3 had its own issues. Like, Dark Souls 3 um, is talked about as the R1 spam game, but that's only because R1 spam is never punished. Like, It's so um, good. <laughs> yeah, like if you compare fighting a Lothric Knight to any of the Elden Ring Knights, you can kill a Lothric Knight as soon as you hit it once to break its poise, because it'll die from the entire rest of you chaining permanent stamina against it. But like Elden Ring, they will recover their poise and they'll fight back at some point. The only way to permanent uh -huh. stagger them is with careful Ashes of War usage or with uh, jump cancelling your... Uh, attack animation into another jump attack, which is like way more complicated and like <laughs> that sounds really hard. That sounds unnecessarily <laughs> I mean, it's not hard. Too bad. If I actually did it on my um when I was finishing my Elden Ring game against like Let's Play against a lot of the enemies yeah. in Faramazula and especially against Gideon. So it's like once you get used to it, it's like right. You know, it's not terrible, but yeah. <laughs> It's like, you have to yeah. learn the patterns of the enemy to do it. You can't just grab a long weapon and then poke people to death, because they can't react anymore after you hit them once. Right. So anyway, answering your question, it's like, I think Elden Ring was still focused on perfecting what they had done before. So like, it sort of felt natural to take the previous engine and not try to make something new like Sekiro did, or even something that had like a new mechanic that was core to its feature like Bloodborne did. I was like, 
also partly like saving time. Like you have to spend a lot of time making those systems and testing them. But if they go with the tried and true ideas of just what they've tested before, they can then make bosses that cater to their new systems. Like right. um, a major change in Elden Ring is that from Dark Souls 3 to Elden Ring, you have this in like Dark Souls 3. It doesn't matter what direction you roll almost all of the time. As long as you roll at the right moment, you'll iframe it and you'll be okay because your roll is far enough oh. to get you out of danger. And it's long enough that like you can literally roll into someone's chest and you'll be okay. But Elden Ring, specifically, if you roll into someone's chest too much, the AI will not stop attacking because the AI's attack patterns are tied to how close you are to the AI when it's determining its future attacks. So on top of that, like you also have like um, Godfrey and Radigan have a lot of attacks like these, where you have to roll left and then right, or the right and then left to like accurately dodge them. So like, I didn't even notice I was doing that. <laughs> I have yeah. tons of moves like that in my head where I'm like left, right, left, forward. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like it trains you because a lot of the time the direction you roll is like inverted to the way they swing. It feels very realistic. Like rolls don't yes. feel like you have iframes. It feels like you're rolling under an attack. And uh, I feel like that's part of where they perfected it, but where they lost some of their player base because you have people coming to it from Dark Souls 3 or Bloodborne where you have these insane dodge lengths and you really just don't get punished for spamming. Like, Sekiro is famously hated because the dodge, you have to know what you're doing if you want to dodge and not get punished. The dodge doesn't do anything unless you're, like, <laughs> actually getting out of there. Uh-huh. Like, you, it, it makes you parry, but people don't yeah. want to play like that. And, you know, like, it's... It's like the classic Souls fan setting themselves up for failure like, by trying to play the game the way they want to play it. <laughs> like... Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like what they're trying to teach us. It's like, we're going to keep switching it up. And yeah, they, and like, like adapting the shield is and the best part. And whatnot. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> we're like, I feel like uh we're probably like the bottom layer if if we're like talking tiers of obsession with from software you and i are like on the same wavelength <laughs> i'm so glad that's like half the best full part insanity. of making exactly like this podcast is all about just going full geek on like the entirety of from software and other pop culture because like who yep. in my natural life like am i gonna meet someone at my job that relates to no. this like <laughs> no 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 not at all they just like you play elden ring what are you some hardcore gamer and i'm like 20 million people bought it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yep uh <laughs> okay What's that next? was pretty in depth um Let's get a little bit into, like, your general history with these games. I mean, like, they are so cool, you know, we don't get to talk about them so much. So, like, yeah, tell me about, like, your exploits, your adventures. Like, what was your first Souls game? Was it Elden Ring? Yes. Or... Okay, okay. So, you no, 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 it wasn't. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't. I, oh. I just said yes. <laughs> it was just the internet screwed us up there. Um. So, my first was Dark Souls 1 in 2011, I want to say. So, like, short-ish after it came out. Okay. Um, and I've just been hooked ever since. So, I played a shitload of Dark Souls 2. I didn't finish every... Okay, so here's my uh, my sins with the with 
the Souls series is that I play them a ton. Um, but sometimes I burn out, and when I burn out, I just don't do it. I never come back <laughs> and, like, finish it. Maybe I will now, now that I'm streaming. Um, so I've got, like, a few DLCs that are, like, shamefully unfinished. <laughs> like, um, the final boss of the Bloodborne DLC, Koss. Or, uh, no, or yeah, Orphan. Orphan yeah, Koss. Orphan is hard as fuck. Yeah, I, I, I was, like... I didn't actually lay eyes on him. I was like close to it, and then I was just like, oh, I'm, I'm bored. <laughs> I'm gonna watch a video. <laughs> That's um, so valid. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, it just it takes a long time. But now I'm way better at him, and um, so as far as like my recent history, uh, I have played Elden Ring like nine to ten times already, <laughs> and I'm do I did a run level one run. I did New Game Plus 6, and right now I'm doing short bow only, no leveling, no summons, no HUD. That's so insane so. to me. Like, the no HUD <laughs> and the no leveling is so much. Like, are you crazy? Yeah. Are you insane? <laughs> it's been pretty fun. The no <laughs> HUD is like, I'm addicted to it now. Ever since I started doing no HUD in Elden Ring specifically, I just can't go back. It's so it looks awesome so looking. flashy. I love yeah, like. It looks so cool. <laughs> I wish there was like a dynamic fade out for it that you could toggle. That 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 appeals to me. <laughs> it it does well. They technically do, but it leaves the it leaves the compass on. <laughs> of all things, it leaves the yeah. compass. <laughs> yeah, I know, and so it's just like so close to great, but then every screenshot it just kind of scuffed. That's <laughs> so funny. Yeah, so um, after playing the game so much, do you have like a favorite region or boss in like aesthetic or gameplay difficulty? Mm. I don't have any favorite areas. I think, um, but uh, I do have like a favorite element, and that is the boss attack design. Because, um, I mean, every veteran could tell you like the f the first fight against Margit is just like. It's legendary. It's got it's got stomps, baby. The stomps like changed everything for for timing, I think. And um and now that I know what you just said earlier, now my other favorite part is the forced directional dodging. So it's, yeah, they just they a just phenomenal boss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think it's more so just like the uh the the fact that they allowed well, they always have been doing this, but it expressed itself in a cool way uh, how the conversation between the people who are really good at these games and the developers. <laughs> and the, the developers being like, no, no, no. We're changing it up. You got to do it this way. No, no, no. And like those stomps are like what represents that for me. The stomps I mean... are like there, there to trick you. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Like, there were a lot of salty people about the who were angry that Margaret was kicking their ass right off the bat, and, like, some of those people were, like, long-term fans, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, but he, like, once you learn him, like, he cannot touch you. Like, it's okay, guys. You will get there, I promise. Absolutely. <laughs> it's only so hard. But yeah, so I've been doing this a long time. Um, I did a bit of lore in the Bloodborne days. 
Uh, I'm pretty sure I was the first one to expose the fact that Abritus looks like the Abritus butterfly and wrote an article about it. Uh, at least I've never found anybody who cited it uh, earlier than that. Um, and so I just like wrote a little bit back then, but now I'm like, I'm in. And we'll get into why very soon. Okay, okay. I like but that. But first, tell me, tell me about your history. Well, I Let's actually technically started Dark Souls the same year you did. Uh, like, mm. I mean, I, I don't really count myself as starting it until Dark Souls 2 came out in 2014. But, like, mm. for one week, I bought Dark Souls 1 from GameStop. Because I was like, oh, that looks cool. And I died in the graveyard to skeletons six times or <laughs> yep. something. Didn't know where to go. I didn't think to look it up, and I returned it the next time I went to GameStop. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't uh, blame you. <laughs> <laughs> for talking, like, sins of Dark Souls, it's definitely that, that I gave up on Dark Souls 1. Yeah, um, that is, that's a hefty sin. <laughs> uh, that my first game was Dark Souls 2 is an automatic sin. Um... The fact that it's what I've put the most hours in is probably a sin. <laughs> um, I hey, at have... least it had great PvP. It does. That was half of the hours, probably. It was. Yeah. I spent a lot of time on that iron, iron bridge. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, and then the last one is that I've never beat Medir. I've beat every other boss in the entire series and i've just never beat not even with summons i don't even right i don't even know why like godzilla did not appeal to me to slay i suppose but you just like gave up you're just like eh, <laughs> it's me. like a two minute run back to him like they oh, did put a okay. bonfire right next to the boss fight but it looks yes. like it was like th they thought about it and then it's like a minute and like, 33 nah. seconds. It's like, okay, guys, them. I guess I'll just make my save file read-only. But like, even then, I don't feel like doing that. I'm not going to jump through hoops to kill Godzilla. I know. I haven't saved scummed <laughs> yet. I'm not about to start now. Like, God. <laughs> I did save scum uh, for my fight. When I did Dark Souls 1 at level 1, I... um. I did uh, read-only save files, so I could just quit out every time I died and then load in before the boss mm. fog, which is so yeah. easy. Like, I running up to Gwyn, or to Calamy, or to Manus, that is a track. <laughs> yeah, good point. I haven't done any, like, true challenge runs of the other ones. It's just been um, Elden Ring, because it's actually, like, amazing for challenge runs, because there's so many options. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, I, I'm I'm a little bit nervous now. Because <laughs> I'm I like, definitely want to go back. You definitely should. And honestly, Dark Souls 1 is easier than some of the others as a one bro. Because you can get pyromancies, and those will trivialize it if right. you want them to. And like, oh, Havel armor spam still works pretty well. Like, it's like, Dark Souls 2 is so hard. And even Dark Souls 3 is pretty hard, even though you can do like the, uh, the straight sword stuff. Mm -hmm. Um... I, my friend did Bloodborne at BL4, and I do not understand that. Like, you'd get one-shot by everything. He, like, yeah. he hasn't done the mm. DLC, but, like... Uh. Yeah, I just watched somebody <laughs> do that. Uh, Nico. Nico over on Twitch. He's the best. Oh, I'll have to link them below, too. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, they're great. <clears throat> uh, okay. So, moving on. Uh, yes. 
gender and Elden Ring and Soulsborn is one of the topics of this episode. And you've had quite a bit to say on it, because like, this is something that you've thought out a lot. And honestly, personally, it's something that's always drawn me to the Souls series, because like, I like the soft representation that they put in. You know, I love Gwendolyn as a character, and like right. the fact that they've always got like, you know, the trans rings and whatever. You know, those are fun. Mm-hmm. They're interesting. Uh, would you like to introduce your own thoughts on the subject matter? Yeah, let me let me slow roll a tiny bit just to poke you a little bit more. Uh, about your thoughts on Gwendolyn. Have Ooh. you had fluctuations on it? Because I know there's like a good amount of uh, trans ladies in particular that have some strong words about them, you know? And oh. about how um, the wording on the very first trans ring... Let me, let me bring it up, actually. I got, I got my mirror boards here, so I might as well. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> so, and if you haven't thought about it, like, clearly you're just chilling. And I think that um, ultimately my opinion is that if uh, given a long enough timeline, most people will see it your way and just be like, oh, look, cool. There's a dope trans person here. Um, But I do understand, like I read some articles and especially if you were like one of the trans girls getting straight washed by some some person on on Twitter, I could see you feeling bad about this. but yeah, but I do think ultimately all of the this representation will be remembered fondly. And uh we'll we'll get into why very, very soon. But first I want to find this item. I don't know if I have it on here actually. Nope. Okay, I gotta look it up. Okay. <laughs> Dark Souls 1 Trans Ring. Ring of Reversal. Okay. Let's read it, and hopefully that'll just jog my memory. <clears throat> Causes males to perform female actions and vice versa. Already, we could we could yassify that a bit and upgrade its gayness to be, like, less uh, female and male and more fe- femme mask in its wording, but that's not really what people had issue with. It's more of this part. Gwendolyn was raised like a daughter through the aura of the moon and was said to behave like a sullen, brooding goddess. So, it's... The the thing that most trans women that I've read... Well, I've really only read, like, two things. Um, But they were basically saying that because... They're saying, like, Gwendolyn is female because of their like negative female qualities here like right it's like first of all gwendolyn sullen and brooding right is that it okay yeah it's the sullen and brooding goddess part and it's also the fact that um it's not like his choice so it's like something that they just did to him rather than it being like um just something inherent about him, you know? Yeah, I've, um... I've like, seen they transified the, like, him. Yeah, I've seen that secondary part where, like, it's, like, people talk about Gwyn as being a villain because he trans 
Gwendolyn, but like, yeah. I mean, personally, I've never really like. I feel like that's a really like. I feel like that's sort of leaping the conclusions in like this subject matter, I where like I they're agree. using a limited word count to describe someone as being exactly. born under the sign of like, like what they're trying to say is that Gwendolyn from birth was raised under the sign of the moon because like he was just like that. Like I don't, I don't think the right. fact that they gave him a ring. And that because they gave him a ring, is that like that made him trans? It's like he was he's like a guy that was raised under the sign of the moon. And like that's I agree. that's referring to like a cultural thing of like men being born under the sign of the moon being feminine. Like, you know, like there's lots of like trans history and cultural things where people represented like different ways and it wasn't as we know it today as trans but it was a way of adopting a split gender role from like the the traditionally masculine one into one that like took both your like the origins of your sex but also your new gender identity and that's like um yeah <laughs> i i feel like that's a leaping to conclusions a little bit and i don't want to say that like in a rude way because like i'm sure yeah. there's some like your personal reading of it is like important to you and um right. however you feel about it the second the first part of it though is um what was the first part of it i'm so sorry i was I, oh I, just I, the I fact the that <laughs> that um that because that um so let's let's pretend we're taking the good the good interpretation uh there's still the point that like they're saying he was feminine because he was sullen and brooding and yeah he, like whiny basically <laughs> and that's what made him more <laughs> feminine it's just like oh i think even under our our good lens and i think our lens is the lens you should read the story under it's still like a little bit tone deaf i think i would agree with that feminism. like i think he's i think he's definitely playing like uh like a sort of like He's playing to a stereotype of like the brooding right. um like person that dresses up as a woman and um doesn't speak, or at the very least like a beautiful woman that doesn't speak and how that's associated with the moon. And yep. it's like I, that makes sense on both accounts, but like it is it's you know, it's taking these negative traits of someone and it's like, yeah, these are these are what makes him feminine. I um I actually just, I was just finishing The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Le Guin, which gets pretty heavily in the gender. Like, uh, since mm. if you haven't read it, and for the viewers that I haven't have read it, it's basically, um, you know, far flung future, there's this large sci fi group called the Ecumen, and they're sending one envoy to a new world that's not yet joined them or known about aliens. And, like, everyone's human, basically, but, like, the different evolutions of humanity. And, uh, he goes to this planet called Winter, and everyone there is biologically like the same sex, it's homogenized, and then they go through states of every month they go through what's called Kemor Kemer, and while they're in it, one of them goes into like a male state and the other goes into a female state, and you can like fluctuate essentially. Um cool. so very heavily into gender, and like one of the major aspects of it was that um the main character is a male because he's coming from a dimorphic sex race. And he's one of his major like other characters is this um person named Estrin. And he always knows Estrin as like a guy, because he he views everyone on the planet as a guy that turns into a woman. It's sort of like it uses this oh. androcentric view of it from his lens. But part of the ending of the book is him accepting Estrin as a woman because he has to spend this time, like while they're traveling up a mountain, and then Estrin goes into Kemmer. I can't and believe like this... Estrin was a girl. 
the one whose name is almost estrogen? <laughs> oh my goodness, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> um, yeah, but like one of the ways that they characterize Estrin as a female, as he's going through Kemmer, as she's going through Kemmer, is that she uh, she's sullen and brooding. So like, yeah. I feel like there's somewhat of like a leftover sort of like older aesthetic. Yeah. Like even if you think of these books as being uh, inspired based off of like books that Miyazaki would have read as a child, I'm just wondering if maybe there was something akin to that that he read that was like goddesses are dark and brooding and beautiful or something like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, is Left Hand, what, I can't remember the exact title, was that written by a Japanese author? Uh, no, Ursula K. Le Guin, I think, was, um, she was from the UK, or, the, or okay. she was in the US, but um, she's a pretty well-known author. She actually, uh, oh, what the hell is the name? It's a Ghibli film. It's like, Oh, the Wizard of Earthsea. She wrote, she wrote that series. If oh, you're familiar that's with like it, like the only one I haven't watched yet. <laughs> I've been it's going down good. the list of all the Miyazaki movies to like look for parallels and whatnot. <laughs> I'm not sure how much that Elden Ring takes from it beyond like the idea of dragons as divinity, and that's not even like a thing that like Elden, you know, like dragons as divinity is just like a human thing. It's not right. an Earthsea thing. Very classic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, I'd recommend though it's a good movie. Uh, yeah, cool. I'll definitely get it, give it a go. Okay, so without further a stalling, how about I give my uh, my little spiel about color theory and whatnot? Please do. Okay, so uh, we just went through my one of my biggest conspiracy theories, the Pangea one. But I actually had one that came before it that is basically the whole reason I'm here at all. Um, And that is the theory that, uh, well, there's lots of characters that may or may not be trans in this game. And that goes back to all that soft representation that you were talking about. Um, But there's a couple that I think are very, that are bordering on undeniable. and. The main one that brought me down this road was Radagon. And uh, so let's let's get the T out of the way first, I think. Because then it'll make it a lot easier for us to continue from there. Okay. The T is that the T is that um, for people who are reading this game and like understanding or just going through the story who are queer. Radagon is America is like a, a stake in the ground for a lot of us. Uh, when you say that and you talk about a character who's trying to be complete and who's trying to change and who's trying to merge with their feminine side, you maybe you don't know exactly where the allegory comes from or where it's going, but for most queer people, we knew, okay, something's going on here. Something's up, bro. Uh, because they don't—they purposely don't give it any other explanation. So, for me as a reader, I was like, "Oh gosh, he finally did it! He finally like made us the main character, basically." And I say us, and I just started transitioning this summer. Um, so, I don't know how much I feel that word 
us yet, you know? I want to kind of, like, prove myself to be cringy about it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I uh, think that you never, you can never, like, appropriate something like that. You know, you started transitioning and you had those thoughts before, and anyone that has those right. thoughts is in some way aligned to that, like, ideal, you know? Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, it's good to continue the spiel. Though. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you. Okay. <laughs> um. So yeah. Um. So I just kind of like got to this point where I was like, okay. Um. I think the game has a bunch of feminist themes to begin with, and that's kind of something I haven't really laid out yet, but I will be at some doing at some point. Um. And then you know, I'm I'm literally personally in the middle of transitioning, like as I got this game, basically, <laughs> and uh, and I I'm just like really into um, literary analysis of video and video games in general. Um. So I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to like uh try and expose this as hard as I can because um. Basically, I just started watching. Uh, lore videos and nobody's bringing it up and it was just like everywhere it was around every corner like um if anybody uh any of our queer friends in the audience think about Zarias slash raya i mean there's like very classic i'm in the closet wording all over that quest line um and it doesn't matter necessarily what she's in the closet for uh, I think a lot of these characters are referencing trans issues in particular. Um, but the nice thing about allegory is that it can be molded. And when you write it really, really well, it could be molded really, really well. Uh, if you, well, you, I mean, some people try to make one allegory be the real one, right? But that's not really what Miyazaki does. Miyazaki's trying to like stick his little pin on the point that hits as many allegories as possible, pretty much. And that's what makes people like us geek out like crazy. Yeah, uh, there's so, like a huge confluence of meaning. Yeah, exactly. And like once you start peeling it back, like that's what makes you know that you're on the right track. So that brings us to color theory. So, I, so uh, uh, excuse me. We're at the point where uh, I know, I know what's going on. I think uh, I wanted to expose it. Um, nobody's talking about it, so now I have to go about like, okay, so there's something I intuitively think is here. Let's figure out a way to prove it out. Um, because these, the cool thing about these stories is that they're written so well that like, if you are on the right track, it should all work. And I use that to thwart myself and convince myself i'm wrong all the time very nice um but what i ended up coming to was using color theory to show where this theme is reused because okay you know if you take a storyline right and there's a bunch of these words in it that sound like they're referencing queer stuff and you try to prove that to someone they might they might not believe you at first, but if you can show them that um, all of these other storytelling elements are also pointing in the same direction, uh, there's like a certain point that like hopefully you can uh, connect enough dots that it'll just overwhelm someone and they'll finally 
be like, all right, I see it. And that's where I think color theory comes in handy with Elden Ring. Because whether you're someone out there that thinks um, I'm full of shit or not, uh, you can use the color theory. The color theory stands in this game. Like, it is very specifically used. It's very deliberately used and very um, thoughtfully used. So, uh, regardless of whether this is all trans stuff or not, uh, there is a lot to be learned just by analyzing what colors things are uh, because they hold a lot of meaning they hold a lot of uh, feeling associations in the game and my interpretation kind of goes like this I'll I'll try and lay it out in like a I'm going to use chronological but chronological really doesn't mean anything so but I just think thinking about it uh in this quote-unquote chronological way helps me understand it. So, let's start at the beginning. The beginning is white. White is purity. White is birth. White is rebirth. It's the beginning of a story, right? White is made up of all the colors. But if you break it out, you're usually going to have like some primary colors and some secondary colors. And you could uh, analyze the story based on visual light and that color spectrum, or you could do it based on uh, like the color wheel that we use for painting. Um, but the way I went about it was somewhere in the middle. It's kind of like its own its own language that's sort of similar to mixing paint and sort of similar to visual light, and just ultimately combines in its own ways. So let's pretend we have white. And then we break white into four primary colors. Two of them would be human colors, and two of them would be divine. Our human colors would be red and blue, and our divine colors are gold and silver. And I think most of us in the audience will, like, instinctively know these colors are referenced a shitload in-game. Just, like, everywhere, everywhere. And when... Uh, red is around, and when blue is around, usually they're very dominant. Um, so I think that basically red and blue represent masculine and feminine aspects. And we got to remember that um, these... Let me, let me say this the right way. The way that the author interprets femininity and masculinity is not the same way that the colors do. The colors are set up to be subverted. And that's what we're going to talk about here is like how these um, colors are shown to basically just not work as categories and how everything is like mixes of things. So we start off with red and blue, masculine and feminine, and then we have uh, gold and silver, which could be like the divine halves of those two aspects. Yeah, right. Like gold and silver representing inner and outer order, the divine portions of the Elden Ring and right. the cosmos, and then red and blue are the very much like tangible body and soul aspects of what right. is going on. Right, like in the life. actual critters running around. Yeah. <clears throat> and so you got those concepts right, but then we can make concepts by combining them, and I think that 
So let's let's just pretend there's green and there's mercury that I think are combinations of two things, but let's pretend those ones are not that important because they're not uh, for this discussion. The one that I want to sell you on is purple. Purple is associated with unity in its imagery with Renala and the vows and the marriage that is um, portrayed very positively. The divorce is not portrayed positively, but the the union of Radagon and Renala is portrayed as like a very sacred thing. So we know purple is looked highly upon, and we know that purple is naturally the com combination of red and blue. So the theory goes, if there's trans characters in the game, they're probably going to be associated with purple in some way. And I can hear you already saying, well, Radagon America aren't purple, but they have a son slash daughter who is very purple. And Nicola? that, yep, that's Sorry, Nicola. Spoilers. You got it. You got it. <laughs> so basically, the theory goes red is our very masculine characters, like Radon. Um, and then, so Godfrey's a little bit of an exception because he's more like, He's almost full divinity in this story. He's like not very active at all. So he's like all gold. Um, but you, the more um, just as a side note, if you think about yeah. Godfrey as being blue, you know, he's got the blue cape and the blue right. robes on top of his gold emblazoned armor. He's got like the divine uh, mastered side of the red, like the like you know masculinity of the ferocity. But then he's all um. On the blue side, people like associate that with manners a little. You see how Rhea Lucaria is blue, and it's like very elitist, right. and noble society. So, like, yeah. So as his name Godfrey is the name he takes when he becomes king and joins society. Um, you know, he takes on the blue mantle of civility. But then when he undoes that and goes into Horolu mode, he paints covered himself. In blood. Yep, red blood. So he's full on ferocity. You know, we live in a society, I guess. <laughs> Hell yeah! Very nice. Thank you for that addition. I had I was like kind of like a little bit stuck on his little blue cape, but that totally makes sense. I'm glad I could be of service. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Uh, so we've got uh, Radon, and um, and you'll you'll and if you're thinking about it, Melania also fits into this category. And that is where we start to see the subversion come in, because Melania is like a warrior and very much war-oriented, but she also has feminine aspects in that she's literally a woman, um, and she still wants to protect her brother. Uh, so she's we'll, we'll 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 shelve her for now. I just wanted to point out that. These she colors are supposed to be broken later on. They're like yeah. there's like a basis, and then there's a bunch of characters that are literally in the story just to show you why these categories don't actually make sense. It's almost like it creates this like very in, like tangible like dichotomy with its colors, just so that it can later on subvert them. Like if you look at Yin right. and Yang within the Dao, one cannot exist without the other. And a, like a piece of one exists within the other, so like you know, there's always going to be red within blue. There's always going to be blue within red. Like, so there true. is no, yeah, <laughs> there's no black and white dichotomies, especially not in Souls games where they're very much Shintoism and Eastern mm -hmm. philosophy based. But go on, please. Um, 
Yeah, and it's, I would say especially Buddhism, and that's like one religion that I just haven't done. I It's like on the list, I want to research it, but I just haven't gotten there. So if you guys are out there hunting, definitely give Buddhism more of a shake than I have. Uh, at the very least, look up Indra's Nat and think about how it relates to the Elden Ring and the depiction of life and like order okay. and heretical. Like it, it'll blow your mind. It's incredible. Okay, I will. I will. You should uh, send that to me on Discord so I don't forget how to spell it or anything. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll just send you the okay. wiki link when we're done. Great. Awesome. Okay, so we've got our first two colors, right? Red and blue. Blue blue is, like, easy. You know, we got Ronnie, we got Renala, we've got all the moon imagery, we've got all the lake imagery, and uh, the, a lot of... One thing to note about this interpretation is that... Um, and I haven't written about this, but this is a, a Jungian. If if uh, I'm using, um, sorry, sorry, I I got a little ahead of myself. I'm using alchemical symbolism to parse this out a little bit and to corroborate myself, basically. But the funny thing about that is I'm not using quote unquote real alchemical symbolism. I'm using the Jungian version of alchemy, which is like purposely misinterpreted well i say purposely i mean he would probably swear up and down it that like no this is for real but i think he knew he was full of shit his entire life um so that's that's just my note on young um but <laughs> he was the one who assigned these colors to like fe femininity and masculinity and uh these different alchemical symbols like gold and silver and water and fire uh to these different aspects and he didn't know what the heck he was talking about <laughs> he was just like yeah these symbols are all really cool here let me slap my own interpretation on top of them and just kind of like shoddily uh translate the original text and or ignore them completely to he serve whatever to i want Exactly. He wanted to shove yeah. his whole idea of a hero with a thousand faces onto everything and yeah. put it all in one tiny, neat box. This is Carl Jung, for anyone um, yes. not familiar, if you want to look up him and his work with Hero and a Thousand Faces and stuff. Uh, if you're not into reading, there's um, Noah Gervais is a YouTube analytic guy that made stuff about KOTOR 1 and 2, Knights of the Old Republic. He's got a really good series on it, but... Um, oh, nice. Yeah, not to tangent too far away, uh, go on about his alchemical reading, because, like, it's fucked up, but it's also, like, it does put things into, like, tidy circles that we can then examine again. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, it's like... It's, it's kind of a bullshit basis to uh, understand human uh, minds on, but it's a great basis to write your story on because it's very archetypal. It's very, um, it's it's just it, it pulls from like the easiest symbols, the most readily available symbols the dude had in his head. Honestly, <laughs> um, so you can set it up and then you can just topple it with like the tiniest little amount of queerness, and that is where purple comes in, uh, and. If we look around the game, there are a couple of characters that are associated with purple. Renala, who we mentioned before, and 
also Saint Trina, who is my namesake, who is the alter ego of Mikola. Mikola, as a young man, is a young man. But in the dream sphere, when he enacts anything as Saint Trina, she is a woman. And this is another point in the story where every every queer reader is going, bing, 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 bing. They're going, oh, in the dream world, they're a different gender. I wonder what that could mean. And, uh, you know, we we can pick up on it really fast, um, but some people might just not buy it. So you need to, like, kind of beef up the story, and that's where this board comes in. Um, and uh, I, I don't know how... We'll, we'll, like, I'll let you kind of uh, guide us around, and you can ask me about things that you're interested in. Um, but my point here is that these symbols, if you just look around in game, you can find a lot of different descriptions uh, where if you apply our understanding of red and blue to them and you understand their descriptions with those symbols in mind, uh, as feminine and masculine aspects, they start to make more sense. Uh, and my favorite one to expose that is the Lazuli Glintstone Crown. So there's a bunch of different crowns that Rhea Lucaria has for different conspectuses. And the Lazuli Glenstone crown is the purple one. And remember, purple is the combination of blue and red. So it's the combination of feminine and masculine aspects. So if we hold these to be true, and then we throw it onto this item and analyze the words, let's read it. Scholars of the Lazuli Conspectus study Carian sorceries, a heterodox pursuit that views the moon as equal to the stars. So, under alchemy, the sun, or under Young's alchemy, let me be specific, the sun is masculine. Actually, that is shared by real alchemy, um, but not in the same way. The sun is man, and the moon is woman. So when you have a heterodox study of the moon being equal to the stars, to me, that means we are studying uh, feminine aspects as equal to male aspects, because stars are what the sun is. The sun is a star, stars are the sun. I'm kind of equating them here in this sentence. And that's where the purple com the purple uh, color comes from. Uh, and one other thing to note, I'm, I'll let you go, but uh, I just wanted to add that this is specifically the Carian school of study, which was founded and made into royalty by Renala herself. So yeah, yeah, I um I like the theory. Uh, I don't like to sound disagreeable, but um. I agree with the idea of like the gemstones and lazuli of the crown taking from Renala's purple because like it's carrion. Like the lazuli conspectus mm -hmm. is a conspectus that is born where like they believe they they worship um not worship but they study the full moon and like you know right. they divine it and everything and the full moon's represented through Renala. But I feel like when it says the stars, it's alluding to the conflict between the carrion royal family and the Rayo Lucaria, where Rayo Lucaria like was inevitably going to come to, like, 
uh, conflict with Renala. Like, you see this idea with the primeval sorcerers wanting to restore the stars because the uh, stars are no longer, like, a thing, and they're opposed by the Carrions who want to, like, keep their power with the moon. And, um, okay, I, uh... one thing I wanna, one thing I wanna question there. What makes you feel that, um, that they are against Caria? Because I, I feel like the Cuckoo are against Caria, but not necessarily, Liz, um, those primeval sorcerers. Um, so there's a couple hints to it. Uh, the first one being that, like, I think it's in Renala's Remembrance, or one of the, like, similar main ones before her, where it's like, the Academy locked her in the Royal Library. Oh, right. Like, they couldn't right, kill right. her because she would just rebirth herself. And anyone that fought her to try to would end up as one of those rebirthed daughters of hers that are just endlessly trapped there without any form or, like, memory of who they were. Right. So, like, they were just like, okay, throw her in there and then we'll lock ourselves off from the world and we'll be chill. And that's what okay. they did until we show up to kill everyone. And, right. um... The Cuckoo were specifically not with Rayo Lucario. Like, it's not like they didn't rebel against them to like try and take stuff from them, but they were very much like, okay, at the beginning of the Shattering, they were like, okay, you guys can like stay here and do whatever the hell you want. We're gonna go like kill all the Carrions. And I mean, you could see that as them upholding the idea of the Twin Bird, where it's um, like the Carrions have forgotten their connection with Vitality and the like Cuckoo are like, well, yeah, that's not okay with us. We're gonna mess you up. You could also see it as Merica manipulating them because she knows that Ronnie will be doing up to like be up to no good, so it, it could go either way. Um, I only bring that up just to like you know as like a possible other interpretation. Although like mm -hmm. I don't think that discounts from this idea of like. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> I lost the thread. But like, I I don't mean to, I I hate disagreeing, you know. No, no, that's all right. So how about <laughs> how about this? What would your take be on the um the stars part of that? Um, I would see it as like the uh the Rayo Lucarians study the primeval stream or the glintstone that's born from it and has come to Earth. So like they're inherently right. aligned with the stars, and yes. then you have like. Like, the Elden Ring is specifically a star, you know, like, the golden star imagery, but it's, like, it's unique in its sense. Like, you have the stars as a faction of the night, the age of stars, and then you have the Elden Ring as the sun, so, like, during the day, it blocks out all of the stars. So, like, they're sort of, you know, it's, like, the golden star, I, I guess you could call it. So it's, um, mm -hmm. it's somewhat unique in that sense. Like, when you, um, there's this one, uh... There's this one description that also mentions a red star in reference to the formless mother and Mikola. Right. So it's like you you also have that. And um I think the color before the star is significant, especially when you consider this as like all of the other conspectuses are people that study the stars. Like you've got the um, the <laughs> the Olvenus, the Carolos. Right. I was sort of blanking for a second. So but, um, so here's here's where I'm going with that. All of those conspectuses are studying masculine. the stars and and not the moon. And yeah, they're masculine. And furthermore, academia throughout our human history has been dominated, a, a male-dominated space up until very recent past. 
Mm -hmm. Very much so. Especially, like, and I so mean, it became more male-dominated as it went from a, like, a techno from, like, a spirituality to technology, because, like, right. you know, it's, like, the same thing with codified religion, where previously it was a spiritual thing as a woman, and then, it, like, they get pushed out of it as it becomes a position of power. <laughs> Oh yeah, god, exactly. humans as a species. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, We're fucking it up. <laughs> uh, I think that's a fair point. I think um, one of the possible counterpoints would be that Salen exists as like the person that inherits Azur's and Lusat's desire to like unleash the primeval stream, and she is a woman herself. But like, mm. even her, like you know, like. Like I, I get where you're coming from. Like I think it's right. uh, I think it's a good to point out though. Um Okay. Cool. <laughs> I feel you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad uh interpretations exist simultaneously and all. Right. Um, <laughs> True. Okay. So <laughs> let me let me expand a little bit more on purple here and how, how we can uh loop our way back to America. So America's not very purple, right? But there is something that is a little bit sneaky about purple, and that purple used to be very – well, it is still very associated, but it used to be even more closely associated with black. Black is the color of memory, the past, and also death. Um, red also has a bit to do with death, but I, I don't know how to parse that one out, so we'll have to come back to that someday. Um, but Purple and black in the grave violet item are directly links. The hue of ghost flame, it is believed to be useful. Oh, wait, sorry, I read the wrong part. The grave violet, a purple flower that blooms in graveyards. The hue of ghost flame, it's believed to be useful in calling for spirits. So the grave violet uh, mentions that ghost flame's hue was is purple. Uh, and we don't really see that anymore. There's no purple in Destined Death. There's no purple in Ghost Flame. So what happened to it? Well, in 1.0 of the game, you can actually fight Malekith the Blackblade, and instead of having a red Destined Death, he has a purple Destined Death. So at, at least at some point, Destined Death was directly related to the color purple and that is kind of how for me this theme loops back to america herself uh because she and malekith are are basically just tied thematically yeah and, and i mean uh yeah, you finish the thought yeah okay uh, no, no, go for it. Go for it. Okay. Well, I mean, this is sort of foreshadowing to the fin the end of the episode, but essentially, I mean, like the uh, the hue of ghost flame, how it used to be purple or violet. That, in my opinion, definitely could correlate to the Glomide Queen. How her being sealed away, her influence of right. purple on the flame left uh, left all of the places where it appeared. You know, like the ghost flame turned to a pale white. So, I mean, like, if we think of Merica as possibly the Glomide Queen, you mentioned Melina as the Glomide person, so maybe there's, right. like, a bit of confliction that we'll have to, like, work out at the end of the episode, but I think, um... Yes. 
There's, uh, there's some possibilities to consider there with Marika being able to embody herself through secret purple. And also, if you think of Radigan as being like a latent sort of grief for like unwieldy desires within Marika, then like her previous nature could add to that. I don't, I don't know. Yes, it, there's a lot of exactly. things to think about over this. <laughs> exactly. So if you, um, okay. Let me see if I, I, I don't I don't want to get ahead of myself because it's kind of hard to put it all together, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, take okay. your time. So now we've linked Mearka to Purple through her fear of death. So some some so let's let's pretend like you and I, you know, we both we both agree that like um Marika and the Glomite Queen are like very similar characters and I, I do believe that they're supposed to be somehow like the same person in some effect. Marika um, and who? I'm sorry. And the Glomide Queen. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. Very much so. I agree. Yeah. So, but let's let's pretend we don't believe that just because um, some people won't. We can um, walk them through it. Right. <laughs> so, um, but. Even if we don't believe that she's related to the Glomide Queen, we do know she's deeply related to the themes brought up by Malaketh, and the themes brought up by Malaketh are death, and death associated with purple. And the other character who is the most associated with purple is, in my opinion, our most, our next most trans character. We've got Renala too, but that's the other side of purple, where purple also represents vows and joining of people. Um, not just within yourself. So, we've got Marika associated with a trans character, and we've got her having an alter ego, so to speak, that is a man. We can then kind of create a hypothesis of, okay, maybe Radagon is carrying the torch for America in a story of transition. We've got lots of like smaller stories about transcoded characters. It's possible that the larger story is also about trans characters. So if that's true, we should be able to find all of those little clues that uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the section uh, that queer people will pick up on. So let's zoom in now on the giant's braid. And uh, maybe I, I'm interested to hear your take on this item because everybody has has a different take on this item. Oh, but yeah. Let, <laughs> yeah. There's been so many theories. And honestly, right. I think that, uh, that like, From Software changed their minds about it a couple times. Like, back when the Frenzy mm. Flame was about vengeance, I think the giants definitely might have been intended to curse Radigan or like Marika with their vengeance and then she had like the flame come into her and that could have been the genesis that of her like sense. Radigan side. But like now now the frenzy flame was sealed and like the giants weren't really cursed and like even Radan with the giants like he's not cursed with fire anymore. He just burns himself to resist the rot. Like uh so Oh right. <laughs> I think the most important, yeah, that's actually. I'm sorry, side note, but like, yeah, Radan oh. might have used to be in his room, might have been 
meant to represent fire because like the giants cursed him and then he also got the giants uh the fell god's great rune which is why he's so big now compared to the beginning of the war um oh yeah good point yeah they just never they just don't really go into it that much no, Radon doesn't have a lot of lore. He's got a really cool spectacle, but like they don't have a lot of like item descriptions that are like, well, this happened to Radon, and then he did this. You just know that like it doesn't even confirm that he was there at the second defense of Lindel. The like the best theory supporting that is that he has that Margit defended Lindel at that point, and that mm-hmm. if Radon had two great runes and went to Lindel and lost to Radon, which we see in the intro painting of the timeline, if, like, the introduction matches up with the timeline of the Shattering War, then, like, he would have left Landal after that battle, chased Godric to Stormvale based off of Kenneth Hate's dialogue, and then gone right. back to Kaled, and, like, that's all we know about him, besides Yeah, that. just that he, like, really likes fighting people. Yeah, and he definitely fought a lot of people, judging from how he festooned weapons as trophies around his castle. Like, <laughs> uh, I guess getting back to the braid, though, I think the most important part of it is that the fire giants, their inherent link to the fire, like, in my opinion, it's the crucible of life that they tended, but according to the Erd Tree, it's the Flame of Ruin. I think that's just, like, dualism of Elden Ring at play, like, at the grand mm, scale. Good but point. Possibly... Whatever the case, it represents fire and masculinity and, like, the power of life within them. So, like, for Radigan, as, like, you've got Merica, who represents, like, Elden, the Elden Ring, like, the two fingers, the causality side of it. But then her alter ego, Radigan, has the fire as his aspect. And then you've got the three fingers with um, the frenzied flame. So, like, there's a continuation of this idea. Like, even the Misbegotten would follow with that, because the Misbegotten are people that made contact with the giant's flame. So they, too, have reddish hair, the Leonine Misbegotten, and I think, like, their in-game data code references Radigan. It's like, they yep. they used to be, like, Radigan's warriors, or... I, Radigan I, I children, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Child of... Ra- children of Radigan. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so I think a lot of the stuff. I think you're right, you're hitting it right on the money there. That a lot of the stuff, the stuff that has to do with red directly, got changed at the last second, and a lot of it got ditched. I think because they just didn't have enough, or it wasn't good enough, maybe. Because like, vengeance can be a lame storyline really easily, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, I like, don't it, think the it's idea... really easy to not say anything useful. When you're talking about vengeance. Yeah. It's, uh... Like, the most you can get into is cycles of violence. And since right. we aren't, like, living in uh, 800 Iceland or, like, 800 Sweden and regularly <laughs> going to feuds with tribes that lived 100 miles away from us, like, you know, it's not much as much of, a, like, a potent and telling theme as much as the misery yeah, of wanting exactly. it all to end is. So, like... I I can see why they changed. <laughs> Most of us adult like once we hit adulthood, we're not. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is a part of other people's lives, but I'm not out here enacting revenge all that often. It seems like a very childish emotion to explore to me. <laughs> You're not pursuing complicated plots of vengeance, Trina. I mean, like, what are no, you doing I... with your twenties? <laughs> Clearly, I'm wasting away. <laughs> not doing anything with my life so oh yeah so before before i lose the thread here 
let me say so for me the giant's red braid let me read it real quick every giant is red of hair and radagon was said to despise his own to have despised his own red locks perhaps that was a curse of their kind and we already talked about how perhaps it was a curse of their kind D- <sighs> who knows what it means could mean anything but to me under this interpretation the whole of this sentence is one of those little like queer ding 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 symbols for me um red as we established and giants themselves are the masculine aspect in the world and if radagon literally is merica and radagon is at war with the redness inside of him then he is at war with the maleness inside of him and if he's at war with the maleness inside of him then to me yeah that really adds up for someone who is having trans thoughts and it and the cool thing about it is I tried to decide whether I thought Mariko was like a fab and she's trans mask or like ex- exactly what she is, but like it doesn't really matter because when you first start thinking about transition and start questioning your gender, um, whichever way you're going to lean at the end, you're going to go through turmoil about your gender right now. So it's like, uh, uh, the story works for all sides. Like it, it's it's a shared experience for all trans people. I think to have just like tension with their like whatever they see as a gendered trait within themselves within their body. Uh, it's just such a common thing for us to go through. So um, uh, having that be a starting point for Radagon as a character arc is like perfect to me. It just it's like oh yep that's a trans person and then if we move on to later on in his life when he's married to Renala and he's trying to like pray pray the pray the gay away sort so to speak um he we have the mask of confidence and the mask of confidence like even just in name alone uh my friend Jean who helped me on this project who is also an amazing lore creator um I bet you could get her on here at some point. Uh, she's very smart, and uh, she was, for her, she was like, yeah, I, I didn't even have to look at the description. Uh, but we'll, we're going to read it anyway. <laughs> and the description reads, When Radagon married Renala, he ordered the Carrion Magic Perceptors to don these masks to make it clear that all of their matters were to be kept strictly private. And again we just have like these little like ding 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 like you hit you hit the nose the head on the nose like uh there's somebody who is very ashamed of their masculine aspects uh who has a secret that can't get out no matter what and yeah it's just like classic um hidden not so hidden queer story to me I mean, and then we yeah, I want to hear your theory, your thoughts first, but we can get into like um, the 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 smoking gun and why I really sold on it after that. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Like moving on to, uh, I guess, like what I want to say is that, um, like, I very much agree with what you're saying here. Like, there's this like everything you said about Radigan, his major conflict with himself 
and his self-hatred like that's all there like it's in the lore like the idea of resisting the flame of becoming perfect and mastering it you know like it's what being like the true king of want is in dark souls 2 it's what um sitting atop the throne is all about it's like what the ivory king is trying to do when he tries to contain the old chaos like there's this idea of mastery of self through achieving perfection um Mm -hmm. and like you can see that so much in radigan who like out of every character in the game like from a lore perspective he has the most obvious sort of three arc pattern you know like his his counterpart america has it and some other characters can have it especially the ones you go on side quests with but like radigan within the lore yeah ronnie's a big one she's so like written she just has so much written about her um but like radigan you know he starts as this champion of the golden order and he's just warmongering all he is is about fighting his um right. his this you know his signature move is gold breaker like there's this very telling thing and if you look at him from like a dichotomy view of america being femme and him being masked it's like oh well america's the non-fighter she's the radarika she's the vessel of the elden ring and he's the uh like fighter and stuff but then you can also see it as like there's like a flip side like they are the same person like america has this ascribed femininity through like the magical stats which have their own ascribed femininity and radigan gets the physical stats but they are the union of one being like you have it on your um your miro chart the idea of the alchemical rebus the idea of a male and a female and one body and that body being a divine godlike being that's that's what america slash radigan is they are you know one being um and like uh like i just i i love that and i love that uh like this idea of like radigan seeking perfection through understanding of the elden ring merica seeking perfection through understanding of the elden ring everyone seeking the elden ring it's this metaphor for seeking your own truth like the elden ring Mm -hmm. represents a transcendental truth of the world and the person who is elden lord represents the wielder of that truth your own view of the world is what exists that's why you can like fundamentally change things upon becoming elden lord it's why rani can break it all the way and do her own bullshit like mm-hmm. it's um it's a quest for meaning so radigan as someone that tried to perfect himself so that he could be the best and most perfect elden lord that would be eternal like he's the god that should have lived a life eternal the golden order should not have ended and it ended because Merica shattered the Elden Ring. And maybe it would have ended otherwise. Maybe Radigan would have never been able to hold on to the power, which is what is implied because like he was imperfect despite all he tried. Right. But, like And they weren't very they didn't even really seem to be merging and until like uh the breaking part of it. Um But I've that's debatable. That- yeah, that, that's um, that's like a debatable thing. I'm of the theory right. that like the game tells you that they're the same person is like a way of very explicitly meaning that they've been the same from the beginning. I think like some of the people that ascribe like timeline stuff to it are like, you know, like right. I think the queen lived a very reclusive lifestyle. Like she wasn't just seeing people every day. Like she was doing goddess shit. She was she was like the god emperor of doom. She's girl like, bossing. <laughs> fuck yeah, she's totally girl bossing. Like yeah. going into the second item description, the mask of confidence that you described. I love this idea that like 
Radigan is sealing them to silence because they know his secret. And, like, there's a shame in it. But then there's also, like, yeah. the political intrigue. Like, what was Radigan's skeleton in his closet? Like, Muriel yeah. talks about it, and then you get the Mask of Confidence, and you're like, what was so important that he wanted secrecy? And, like, later on, you learn that the Carrion's plan were plotting against both Rayo Lucaria and Laindol, so maybe they were plotting an uprising, and if we understand Rani is inheriting the desire for an Age of Stars from her mother, Renala, it's probably, like, Renala was plotting an Age of Stars, and then she failed when Radigan left her. And then yeah. Ronnie started plotting it, and like you know, she can succeed or not based off of you. But like, like the preceptors knew that Radigan was Merica. That's why they like that's that along with the conspiracy to rise up and do an Age of Stars. That was like why they were sworn to secrecy. Like, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's so cool. And and, like, and I mean, the like, thing is, it all worked. It's all it's it's like if you're asking yourself which is it, it's all of them. It's all it's of like, them. It, it is an allegory on purpose, and that's the beauty of allegory, is you get to have two stories. And I think that's so bold of FromSoft to make this idea. Like, like there's the alchemical rebus, there's the, there's the common pattern of gods having multiple forms, there's the dualism yep. of Elden Ring, but there is so much an idea of gender equality and showcasing of gender. Like, in Dark Souls 3, we get that whole, like, in Bloodborne, we've got, like, gender has no regard on ability. You know, it's like, right. you know, it's a soft promotion of equality. And, like, they didn't have to make America have a Radigan alter ego. Like, that's that's a choice on their part. And the fact that Radigan is ashamed of himself, the fact that America is definitely, like, the original being because she's right. the older one with a backstory like it there is a degree of like oh i am dealing with my body i'm dealing with a self-hatred of myself and to perfect that i'm seeking the elden ring i'm seeking meaning and like you can apply that to any self-hate but for anyone that goes through like these dual aspects of dysphoria and euphoria even body image concerns you know like yep. the fact of hating it's your own very body, similar. yeah it's definitely there, and it shouldn't be discounted. Yep. It's just, uh, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> it is. I this has been Elden Kings, episode 13, Elden Gender and More. Brought to you by r slash Elden Ring Discussion and her affiliate subreddits. We'd like to give a special thanks to St. Trina for so kindly coming onto the episode, and would also like to wish her a happy birthday as of the release date. And thank you to all the viewers who came this far as well. Stay tuned for the next episode where we'll wrap up our thoughts on gender and the trans between, as well as dive down into some of the lore concerning the Glomide Queen and her secret identity. As always, don't you dare go hollowed on us.